This is a Federal News Network podcast. Intelligence analysis has long relied on data generated by people and on the ground and signals in the air. Well, now the discussion within defense and intelligence circles centers on the potential of data available for sale, so-called commercial intelligence. For more, we turn to the CEO of Govini, Tara murphy Darty. Tara, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And what is going on? I mean, you do sell data to the government, and many, many other firms have commercial data, mostly for availability to the commercial marketplace. There's hundreds of sources. What is the big deal in the intelligence world these days that you're seeing? There's a shift that is definitely taking place within the intelligence space, and we have seen this shift, which is bigger than the past two years, really come to a forefront over the past, I'd say, 12 to 18 months. The war in Ukraine has played a particular role in highlighting this phenomenon, which seems to be a shift in the dominance that the national security apparatus of the United States has had for decades now on not just generating intelligence, but also processing it and making sense of it. These are areas where actually the commercial sector in the United States is wildly outpacing the federal government, including DOD. And that reality is starting to hit the desks of intel officers and analysts in particular. Now, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is well known to be using commercial mapping and Earth terrestrial view satellite data, commercial data. They openly talk about how much they've inculcated in the past years. But what are other types of data besides geophysical that is widely available that could be of use to the intelligence community? I would commend NGA and uh, point to them as a leader in this space. And we'll come back to why I think they're the perfect example of being at the forefront of this trend. But to your question about additional types of sources, Tom, I would point people to something that they're very familiar with recently, which is the COVID maps and public health data as another example. So when the COVID-19 pandemic hit us in spring of 2020, for the following or subsequent months after that outbreak in January through March, we saw everywhere the growth of public data being put to use to understand an emergency situation. That's a great example of data that is not just publicly available in some spheres, but in commercial spheres is collected, is transformed into a high fidelity asset, and then is linked with other data. Think about data that tells you information about demographics or people's movement around the world. It was that process of ultimately combining those high fidelity data sets and doing so at scale that helped us not just understand what was happening with the pandemic, but start to get our arms around a response. And so from public health to military operations and national security intelligence, this trend is impacting that wide of a range of activities. And you mentioned the war in Ukraine and the, I guess you might as well call it a proxy war that we're having with Russia. And so through Ukraine, what is the role of commercial intelligence, do you think, in that particular sphere? I think it falls right in the middle of 
national security intelligence, which is that intelligence that is traditionally collected, processed, analyzed, disseminated by U.S. government agencies or you know, by government agencies, which continues to have a really important role to play. And then OSINT, or open source intelligence, on the other end of the spectrum, which is becoming somewhat problematic in today's world where anybody with a Twitter account can claim to be an intelligence analyst. Some of the information that people on the ground at the individual level are providing has been very valuable and insightful and drives credible media sources. And some of it is total junk. Sometimes it drives them right off the cliff. Exactly. So commercially sourced intelligence is taking that data that is not just available to government entities, and it's putting a significant amount of credibility and work into validating it and then improving it such that it's not just good enough for government decision makers, it's good enough for the commercial marketplace. And I would argue that being market tested, especially in the United States, where you have very discerning buyers in both the public and private sectors, is a real test and a challenging one. We're speaking with Tara Murphy-Darity. She is CEO of Govini. And the Experians, the LexisNexises, the Recorded Futures, companies like that that have different data sets that they offer both commercially and to the government, most of that is used in the area of identity validation in a way of certifying people are who they say they are as it operates in the background. What are some other possible applications of commercial data like that? Well, I would go back to your NGA example and point to the geographic or geospatial information that is not just available, but really is better than what a lot of government agencies are collecting. And this is driven not just by commercial companies that are doing great things with data, but commercial companies that are putting assets into space on their own dime in order to generate this information. Certainly what we have seen as a business within the national security sector is a gap in understanding what's happening in the rest of the global marketplace outside of what happens inside the five-sided building of the Pentagon or the U.S. federal government. And so over the past 15 years, We've seen government agencies put a lot of effort and focus into improving their internal data management, getting their arms around their own data systems, and that gives them a better view down and in into their agencies. What DOD and others need to recognize is that they're global enterprises, and therefore they need data about companies, about capabilities, about the capital associated with them that is also global or provides that external global view. That data has to be embraced in order for them to not just effectively operate, but really for the United States to effectively counter China, who is doing this very well. Yes, I wonder if commercial consumer trend type of data would be useful if it's available, and it often is. And the classic example of what used to be considered sensitive information in the Pentagon And you've heard this example a thousand times. Well, if a certain unit of the military suddenly starts stockpiling toilet paper, well, then, you know, troops might be on the move. And if an enemy knew that, they could discern some future pattern of the U.S. military. By the same token, could consumer 
trends like that somehow inform intelligence and national security? Absolutely. You know, America's free enterprise system and the data generated by the markets has always been a tremendous part of our global advantage. It's a big part of the American way. And we've put up a lot of data silos over the past 30 years as data has proliferated in availability. Getting back to embracing data of the kind you're talking about, of turning that data from just free enterprise activity into actual military hard power is actually exactly what Govini is dedicated to doing and exactly what the United States needs to do. Now, Govini does artificial intelligence-powered examinations of big data across all of the spending that's happening in the military and the government. Have you discerned a pattern of acquisition of commercial databases besides your own? (laughs) As meta as it is, we have absolutely looked at this question. And the data shows that spending has been relatively stable. There has not been a dramatic shift over the past 10 years in the amount of money that the Department of Defense in particular is spending on commercial data. I suspect that we're going to start to see a change in that very quickly here. And even looking at 2022 data, which is something that we'll do starting this month, might tell a different story because of exactly what we've talked about with respect to the phenomenon happening with geospatial intelligence, commercially sourced intelligence, with respect to military operations in Europe. And we'll stay tuned. Tara Murphy-Doherty is CEO of Govini. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say and on. I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism and, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's, uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or, uh, year old, uh, folks, 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.